may be seated. You cannot beat a well-sung wiggle worm. Uh, we should have let them spread out and let them really go to town. I think it would have been a glorious sight to behold. Alas, I'm just the pastor here. I'm not sure, Mom, what, what did you say about crossing your legs for the kids? Ah, it is okay for them to sit with their feet in the seat. However, when I was a kid, you could not sit with your feet in the seat. So somewhere over 40 years since I was a tot, it has changed. Uh, and I think it's because we have chairs. The church I grew up in had pews, and, you know, pews are stuffy. They're formal. I mean, they, you know, they are what they are, and you can't put your feet up on those. They're nice. These, they're just, they're just chairs. So the kids did a great job. Uh, parents, thank you again, as I said at the beginning. Thank you for having them out. Um, it means a lot to the teachers that teach your kids. It means a lot to the leaders who invest their time in doing the planning of it. Uh, it is truly a wonderful ministry to be a part of, and if you want to be a part not just of BAC, but the teaching, you can always see Wes. Is that right, Wes? Um, he has done just a fantastic job. And I'm not saying that just because Mom's here tonight, but he has done a fantastic job. He's a wonderful addition in the time that he can be here on the staff, and, uh, and part of it is helping to run and organize and structure all of the children's ministry, and I think he just does a wonderful job of it. Well, take your Bibles tonight and turn with me to Psalm 127, and I would be remiss if I didn't say to my mother, thank you for leading those kids. Uh, I know that the modular building on the right side at the end of Wednesday nights, it's a rockin'. I mean, they are having a good time, a hoot nanny in there, until nanny, as my boys call her, let them loose. And so it's a good time uh, in music time over there, and they learn good songs. Well, we're going to read a very familiar psalm. Most of us know Psalm 127, or at least we know a portion of Psalm 127. Um, tonight, what I'd like to do is, and I've preached Probably, I went back and looked in my notes, over 15 years, I've probably preached eight times from just Psalm 127. And so what I'm going to do tonight is not try to reinvent the wheel, but I am going to try to reintroduce you to the psalm in its context. Uh, it is absolutely a great psalm, and we'll use it at the end in, in looking at some practical things in our second point about why God used it, while Solomon wrote it, by why Hezekiah, I believe, who compiled these 15 psalms, why he chose it here, in particular with what we studied last week, the trouble that they were facing. Let's read the psalm, we'll pray, and then we'll jump into the preaching this evening. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep, rest, relief, we might say. Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Father, help us tonight as we understand this psalm and properly apply it both in the raising of our children and in our home life, but also in our spiritual life. 
how it helps us to trust in you as we overcome the troubles. Bless us, I pray, as we look into your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we noted the trouble was the loss that had come because of captivity. That is true when we read 126 and verse 1, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion. While the Psalm 126 is certainly an upbeat psalm because captivity is over, the tenor, the tone of the psalm itself is about the loss that happened because of the enemy's oppression set upon them. We noted in that message last week that the trouble often comes to us when we make mistakes, when we falter, and when we fail. We live too long in the past, and we never actually ask God to turn our captivity. So what is it that overcomes past loss? What is it that helps us to overcome our captivity, whether it be to sin or oppression or those that set themselves against us? The answer is the hope for tomorrow. What helps us deal with loss in the past is the brightness of the future for us. And that's why the trust of Psalm 127 is so absolutely essential to understanding how you move beyond difficult loss and difficulty in the past. Psalm 127 is a psalm written for, as it says, Solomon. Many times we think this to be that it was written by Solomon in its word structure, but it was put to music and it, was became, it became a song of degrees for the intention of Solomon in his day to sing it or to read it. These are his words of wisdom then as he reflects on his upbringing and the raising of his own children that were in his life. He recognizes the futility of doing anything without God's involvement and he also notes the fruitfulness of what God does when He goes about building our home. Wise words are certainly found in this psalm. Unfortunately, neither the writer, Solomon, nor the recorder or the compiler, Hezekiah, lived by these words. Hezekiah was a good king, to be sure. I must qualify that statement. But he certainly didn't seem to care about his following generation, and we'll read that in just a few moments from 2 Kings chapter number 19. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, rejected his father's instruction and ultimately split the kingdom in half. So these words were a song from a truly wise heart, not so much from obedient hands in Solomon and his actions. You almost, by the way, cannot blame old Rehoboam. His dad had nearly 1,000 wives and concubines. Could you imagine growing up in that kind of a home or in that kind of a setting? It would be hard to attach yourself to your daddy or to the God that your daddy supposedly loved when he only would come around about once every two and a half years. I did the math, 365 days. If he just spent one day with each woman, it would take him almost two and a half years to get back around to you. Actually, I think if the math is right, it's closer to three, right at three years. That's a long time. Hey, Dad, see you in three. And so when we read these Psalms, we cannot take away the errors of the people that may have penned them or may have recorded them. But that's the beauty of Scripture because they are truth through and through, no matter who the penman was, because the author is God. It's the beauty of the psalm. 
By the way, Hezekiah knew these wise words and used them, for they represented his trust and hope in God for both the restoration and rebuilding that would need to take place in both Judah and in Jerusalem. Insanely, though, and I I say that very truthfully, insanely, Hezekiah seems to do the same thing that Solomon did, and that is not teach or seem to not pass along these truths to his son. His son Manasseh was a horrible king after him. In fact, here's what the Bible says. Now, you have to understand that during Hezekiah's life, after the captivity had set, and when God had turned again the captivity, that after that he fell sick, he became ill, and he was near unto death. And from that illness, from that sickness, God spared him and gave him 15 years. In the process of that, he invites in an ambassador from Babylon to show him just how great his God is. By the way, there's nothing wrong with bragging about your God. But there is something wrong if you live in that arrogance and pride. And Hezekiah makes the mistake of bringing them in. In fact, God tells him so in 2 Kings chapter 19. Here's what God corrects Hezekiah for. And we can see why Manasseh, his son, was very upset and did not follow these words at all. In 2 Kings 19 and verse 16, the Bible says this. Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold... The days come that all this, all that is in thine house, excuse me, and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon. Oh, you just turned our captivity. What? Nothing shall be left. It's going to be bad in 2 Kings 19. Do I not have that in there, Kara? Okay, then forgive me. You can assume along or you can read along. You can look up 2 Kings 19. Sorry, I thought I had on the overhead. He says, uh, he goes on to say, And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away. What hope is there for Manasseh? This is what God just said to Hezekiah. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now here's Hezekiah's response. Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. Your sons are going to be taken into captivity and it will not go pleasantly for them. Everything you have will be lost. Blessed is the word of the Lord that was spoken. You're saying it's not happening in my lifetime, though. He says, the the end of that passage, he said, is, Is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? Hey, as long as I'm happy... By the way, there's a lot of parents that live their life as long as they're happy. They don't actually live the words of this particular psalm where they teach the next generation, their children, what is right from what is wrong. They don't teach them the absolutes of God's word. I think these statement from Hezekiah might be the craziest statement I've ever heard. Well, I'm glad it won't happen to me. Whoo, he says. If you were Manasseh, his son, wouldn't you also... Go crazy against all that your dad supposedly believed or taught? And the answer is, yes, you probably would. It would be like me saying to Drew, well, I mortgaged your future because I wanted to do what I wanted to do. Good luck. Oh, a lot of times we find families that do that. (gasps) This psalm and the people that recorded, wrote it, excuse me, and compiled it, maybe they're a little bit more like us than we want to imagine. 
Well, let's turn to the hope in the psalm, not the hopeless people of it. The trust in this psalm, as I put in your notes, is in, is in the principle being taught, not necessarily in the people who are teaching it. That is often true in Christianity. There are no perfect people. Thus, every pastor is flawed because he is marred by a sin nature. I am too. There's days I get tired. There's days I get frustrated. There's days I just don't want to do the work of the Lord. And you say, really, pastor? Hopefully not many days. I wouldn't be here much longer. But there's days you get tired. And every person on staff can tell you the same truth. Every one of you as Bible-believing Christians can tell me the same truth. Sometimes it gets hard. We are flawed. So it doesn't violate or negate the principles that are taught here. It just means the people were flawed who wrote it. The message of the Bible is important, even if the messenger may have made some mistakes. And I can say as your pastor, praise the Lord for his forgiveness. There were many years, even in my Christian life, where I didn't really live for the Lord. And so I can understand the turning again my captivity, my own oppression that I created for myself. But I find myself then in this particular psalm looking for trust. So enough of the context. We know the context of this particular psalm. Let's get into the psalm itself and find the trust that can lead us from the trouble of captivity and loss to the triumph that Edward is going to preach on, or chapter one, or Psalm 128, I should say, next week. The first trust that we find in this psalm is in the first two verses, and it is trust in God's hand or in His handiwork, in His working in our behalf. Hezekiah trusted in God, the Bible says in 2 Kings 18 and verse 5. Oh yes, by the end of his life he had some struggles and had made some mistakes and certainly did not set a clear direction for his boy. But it is obvious that the man himself did trust in God. And he trusted in this psalm, the reason he selected it from Solomon's writings, he he trusted the fact that God chose to work on our behalf. What God promises, He will do. If you go back to Deuteronomy, do I have this one in there, Kara? Deuteronomy 28 is in there. If you went to Deuteronomy 27, you would find that Moses warns Israel before he passes. There's a bunch of things that will bring God's cursing. In, In chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, he pivots to talking about what brings God's blessing. How do we get back to a state of being right with God? And how do we get over the loss of the past? Here's what the Bible says, beginning in verse 1. And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do it. So in other words, see it and do it, not just read it. All his commandments which I command me this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. Notice the next couple verses. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, meaning they'll overwhelm you, is what Moses is saying. If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, blessed shalt thou be In the city. I believe Solomon, when he's writing this, is remembering the words of Moses in in Deuteronomy 28. Blessed shalt thou be in the city. Blessed shalt thou be in the field. 
Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body. He's literally talking about having multiple children or many children. That's exactly what Psalm 127 is teaching us. And the fruit of thy ground and the fruit of thy cattle, the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shall, blessed, excuse me, shalt thou be when thou comest in and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses and in all that thou settest thine hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The Lord shall establish thee a holy people unto himself as he has sworn unto thee if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. And all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of thee. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, plenteous in the fruit of thy body, and in the fruit of thy cattle, and the fruit of thy ground, in the land which the Lord swore to thy fathers to give thee. You get the impression from this passage that Moses is telling them, you should be fruitful. You should experience God's blessing. He's just told him about curse. In that passage, he tells him about blessing. But by the way, we won't read it all. But would you go, if you were to go to the next verse, verse number 12, he starts telling them again about punishment. Hey, look, there is a curse if you disobey. There is a blessing if you obey. But by the way, if you continue in that cursed life, there is punishment that will come to you. By the way, that was the punishment that was coming to them that we're reading of here in the psalm. So we find the three ways in which God puts his hand to work on our behalf when we trust in him. Letter A, it is to rebuild our opportunities. Verse number one here says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Wait, are you telling me, Kyle, I can't have a good house unless I build it on Jesus? And the answer is you can have a good house, you will just not have a godly house. It will be vain. It will be empty. It will just be temporal of this world. I know some very good homes that don't ever darken the door of the church, but they have a husband and a wife who have raised children that are productive in society. But those families, if they don't know Jesus Christ, when they pass from this earth, it is vain. It's temporal. It's only for this earth. It's not for God's glory. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that Build it. This is the heart of Hezekiah, uh, of why he's using this particular psalm. God was the one who established Israel in the land, and it was only going to be God that could rebuild them within the land after this captivity had been set upon him. Literally everything that was left of Judah had had kind of coalesced back down to just the city of Jerusalem. Good luck. I mean, that's a whole lot of doing to rebuild your land. It's only going to be by God's blessing that you're going to accomplish that, Hezekiah. We see the future that Hezekiah doesn't. You and I have the privilege of reading the next chapter if we were to go to 2 Kings and chapter 21. We would see what would happen with Manasseh. We would see what would come from it. It doesn't change in Psalm 127. Hezekiah's heart is, I want God to rebuild the opportunities in my life and for my children. I want to do what is right. I don't care about the loss that has come to me because of my sinfulness. I don't care about those who've been set against me and what it's cost me. I only care about the future. We know the future. 
Hezekiah as he's writing it, he doesn't. So when we read this, sometimes we say, well, hey, buddy, look down the road. It's going to be trouble. Yeah, but he still trusted in God. He still wanted God's blessing. We know that Israel falls within a generation. But that does not change the fact that Hezekiah's desire and drive was for God to rebuild Jerusalem and even Judah back to its glory for him. For believers, we find this truth in the New Testament. We are built up to be the city that is shining on the hill that Jesus teaches us about in the Sermon on the Mount. Take your Bibles. I actually want you to turn there and turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Yeah, we'll put it on the screen, but I think it would do you good to look at it in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 10, we all know verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We understand those verses, but when we get to verse 10, we find out something different about us now that we're saved. So the captivity that might be there, spiritually speaking... So the oppression that might be there, and even after our salvation, if we allow sinfulness to take control in our lives, how do we work ourselves out of that? How do we allow God's hand to work us through and out of that captivity? Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. The Bible here tells us very clearly, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should Walk in them. God's ordained that those who have faith in Him should walk in His handiwork. Work within His will. Verse 11, Wherefore, remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, our captivity has been turned. You who sometimes were were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace." And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity, that is sinfulness, thereby. And came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them which were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now notice the next few verses particularly. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built... Upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Here is the New Testament principle of what we're talking about. If all of us live still in that captivity, there is no building that God in the person of Jesus Christ and through His Holy Spirit can inhabit. Period. 
If we will let that captivity be taken over by God, I don't want it anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to be in that life anymore. I don't want to engage in that anymore. And I turn to Jesus Christ, first in salvation, but also in sanctification after that. It is then that God, through Christ, can rebuild opportunities that your life could have never accomplished. What Hezekiah is writing is a very real practical lesson for Israel. But what we have to understand as New Testament believers is there is opportunities in the future for us. Why? Because God's going to do the rebuilding. He's going to be the one that's structuring and shaping our lives for His glory. God wants to build your life upon Christ's righteousness and His holiness. The second thing that Hezekiah tells us back in Psalm 127 is not just that he will rebuild by his hand, rebuild our opportunities. In the latter half of verse 1, he will build with his hands through a remembrance of his obligation. He builds in our lives because he remembers what he promises us. He says at the end of verse 1, Except the Lord keep the city. Do you know there's a lot of Christians that try to guard their own lives? Do you know what you are if you try to guard your own life? Now, let me be careful, because sometimes when pastors say that someone might walk out and go, well, I guess I don't have to do anything. What I'm saying is, I'm going to guarantee I'm successful spiritually. That will never happen. I'm going to guarantee I'll get over that. I'll get over it. I know I will. You will never get over it. You have to turn it over to God and let him work his power into your life. His remembrance of His Word is what helps us to be restored. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. The watchman's job was to warn of danger. But if God was not going to remember His promise to protect Israel, then no amount of warning would help. Hey, they're attacking! Hey, they're attacking! Hey, we're all dead! If God wasn't going to protect them, there was no point of the person screaming from the wall top, hey, you you guys, blow the trumpet, somebody else do something else, that surely will fix it. No. It is God remembering His promises to us, and, and our remembering the promises made us, that brings us success. It is God's grace and protection that will keep our lives secure in Him. His hand is not slack concerning His promises. There may have been times when it seems that God has forgotten us or even that He has forsaken us. But like old Job, I can assure you He has not. He is charged with keeping us. By the way, we don't charge Him or task Him with keeping us. He gave himself that very work to keep and to remember that he is our protector. In John 10, in verse 27, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Verses 28 and 29 are some of the greatest verses in all the Bible on eternal security. Jesus then says this, And I give unto them eternal life, and and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And then he adds one more thought in the very next verse, verse 30. I and my Father are one. 
Now, you say, what does this have to do with the captivity that Hezekiah experienced? I think if you've been following along over the last five messages, as we've looked at the trouble, the trust, and the triumph, and then again the trouble, the trust, and the triumph, and then again the trouble, and now the trust in this third set of threes, you will understand that the trouble of loss was deep weighed upon Hezekiah, and so it is on many of us Christians. But the joy for the Christian is, I am not in charge of protecting and keeping my own security, my own city. God has promised to do that for me. Hezekiah was glad for God's protection, for without it, Rabshakeh and Sennacherib would have easily overrun the city. No matter how many citizens was screaming an alarm, you are protected by God's very word, and he remembers that. He will rebuild your opportunities, but he also takes the time and attention in each of our lives to remember the obligation that he made to us when we got saved. The third that we find in his handiwork is that his hand is to relieve our oppression in verse 2. What is it that's oppressing Hezekiah, as he's talking about it, you kind of get the sense that there was a lot of sleepless nights in the city, don't you? And there was probably a lot of nights when the guys were outside, the army of the Assyrians were outside, and they were swearing and cursing at the God of Israel. And inside, people were like, I just can't sleep, it's just too tough. After it was all done, I imagine, there was many sleepless nights. How are we going to rebuild this place? How are we going to put these things back together? And so the words of Solomon, written hundreds of years before, come back for Hezekiah to use. And they are these. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. I am not suggesting that there are not deep difficulties that Christians have to walk through because of circumstances that happen to them that will keep you up at night. But I am telling you that if you trust in the peace of God, if your trust is placed in His power and His handiwork, then there are nights of rest that are on the horizon. It is vain to stay up late or get up early worrying about all of the things that have gone wrong or may go wrong. Worry doesn't solve a single problem for the believer. Faith does. How many times do we worry about rebuilding or restoring our past losses, whether spiritually or physically? And we simply find that it, has, that it is nothing but depressing to us. Well, I can't change the past. You know, that's the biggest realization any person who is suffering over the past can do. You can't change it. Well, that's easy for you to say, oh, no, I've had to say it in my own life. I, I've often asked for the, what I call my wayward years. And my mom and dad know those wayward years. I wasn't the most horrible human being, but I certainly wasn't a godly one. And those wayward years in my life, I look at and say, man, those were a waste. And the answer is, they were. But God is greater than that waste. And the fact that I'd have never met my wife, I'd have never come and planted a church. I'm not saying I should have done that to get to that. I'm simply saying God is greater than that disappointment. He's greater than that. And so I don't lose a wink of sleep over all of those years that I was running from God. We cannot change the past, but God can change the future. 
proper understanding that God is working will relieve or remove the worry and fear that grip our soul. It is indeed vain to stay awake at night working on how to fix failures or problems or circumstances. If you have taken the biblical steps that you must, whether in making a decision or a choice or seeking forgiveness, if you've made the changes that are needed, then allow God to grant you the peace and the contentment with His hand working to restore and to rebuild you. I'm reminded of this idea of being relieved from oppression. Every time I come to reading in Matthew's gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, the words of Jesus. I added this this afternoon because as I was sitting and thinking through this passage once again, so I don't have these slides, I don't even have it written in my notes, but I was thinking of the words of Jesus. When Jesus is talking about uh, taking no thought for ourselves and those things, in the process of it, here's what Jesus said, and, and it's always a funny statement when Jesus says it. I literally think it's one of the most awesome statements that God makes. He says, you're more valuable than the sparrow, essentially. But then he says, you're more valuable than... Many sparrows. Now, we would like to him to say, you're more valuable than all the sparrows, Kyle. But Jesus, as the creator, says, you're more valuable than many sparrows. That's a great statement. What God is doing is both elevating us and humbling us at the same time. Right? Only God can do that. And so instead of living in depression because of the oppression, because of the captivity, well, the trouble has been turned. And our trust in that trouble is that God will restore the years that the locusts have eaten, as the prophet Amos might say. Trust is first in God's hand and handiwork. But secondly, in our notes, this will be a much more practical side of the message because Hezekiah turns it much more practical. It's trust in God's heritage. Trust in His heritage. This is the outflow of His handiwork. Generational blessing with generational building. He rebuilds, he remembers, and he relieves us by giving to us hope and a heritage. This is expressly now about the physical propagation and extension of Israel. This passage within the context of Hezekiah is talking about blessing of societal and national growth. That's what Solomon was writing about, and it's why I believe Hezekiah used it. He took it and he used it because in his trust, God will rebuild us. And he will rebuild us, not in our generation, but the only way he can through the following generations. It's what he believed. So there's some truths that we must note about our children. I, I mentioned in the early service, I did not in the second service, for time's sake. It is amazing how God puts together sermons. When I... When I started making the plans for the preaching of Samuel and preaching of the Psalms, I did not put the two and two together that these would go together. But if you were here for the morning service and about children and about obedience and the longing for consecration that we ought to have to obey Almighty God, we find a great connection to this passage here in Psalm 127. What do we know about God's heritage? What His gift is to us? His blessing bestowed upon us? That's what it means, a heritage. Well, letter A, children are His fruit. He gives them at His discretion. Some of the greatest couples that I know, especially in our church, God never chose to give children, but they're wonderful, faithful servants of God, and they love others' children as if they were their own. It is a true blessing to me to watch. 
God has chosen in this passage to explain to us that it is His discretion to give the product. By the way, let's make a spiritual context so we don't forget it. In the New Testament, we are fruitful and multiplying by sharing Christ with others. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And as the bride in union with Him, we produce fruit. And that's new converts, new souls. But children are the, are the byproduct of God's initial design for mankind. There is always hope in the next generation. I know that we all watch Fox News. Maybe you watch a little less of it. It'll probably help your stress level go up or down or whatever. And the picture painted on one channel, the conservative channel, is if Biden gets elected, it's all over. And on the other channel, if Trump gets elected, it is all over. That's basically what they sound like to me when I listen to them. This group's talking like this, and this group is talking like they just walked out of Britain. And I realize that I'm not going to make it on either channel. I don't care. But the hope is always in the next generation. That's why when parents raise their children, they want to see them successful. I've never met a parent that said, well, I hope my kid's a deadbeat. I have not met one. Have you? Of course not. You want your kids to be successful. Why? Because they're a heritage. They're a fruit given to you, a product that God's given to you. This idea of fruit and multiplication, it's as old as creation, literally. Genesis 1 and verse 28, and God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. God's instructions are for homes husbands and wives, to have babies. I know that's a novel concept. The question I always get as a pastor from this passage is, how many? Well, here Solomon records a quiver full. Isn't that a good pastoral answer? The answer, I believe, is situationally set in God's plan and in our personal stewardship. Many different homes have many different opinions on how many children a home should have. My only admonition is that God rewards faithfulness to His Word. That means within a church like ours, there's a lot of different views that are biblically sound to be held. Jessica and I had trouble, as I mentioned this morning, in having our first child... Then God blessed us, and we chose to stop with Luke. One, I was near 40, and so if I continued to have kids, I was pastoring, my energy level would go down, and at some point I realized I don't think I can be 70 years old and have a kid still going to high school. So there was a choice that we made, and it was a choice that we made as a home. It's our home, and it's His blessing and fruit. And other homes make different decisions, and that's fine. In fact, I think it's good, and I think it's healthy. Hezekiah did not know how to overcome the loss of captivity. But the answer did lie within him. It did, excuse me, it didn't lie within him, but rather in the coming generations. How will God restore it? Through the generations that we teach and that follow us. The hope of expansion is in the hope of multiplication. Solomon's song 
Hezekiah's hope are found in Moses' words that we noted earlier. If you obey me, then the fruit of your body, that's the phrase that Moses uses twice, will abound and you will multiply on the land. Sadly, they didn't hold to those. But the truth of them are still real. God will bless your home. God's blessing upon a people is the fruit of the womb. Children are a gift from God, not a curse, not a burden, not a clump of cells to be extinguished. Children, like all of God's gift, are to be valued, but they are also to be trained. Letter B, they are ours to form in verse number four. Now, I had to ask, and Kara, I appreciate Riley Joe. This morning, Riley Joe helped me out for the sermon tonight. I am not an archer. Are there any archers in here? Raise your hand. I mean, like, you know what you're doing when you shoot the bow and arrow. Okay, hallelujah. You can verify if I'm right after this. A, a true joy of mine as a pastor is to be involved in helping parents train their children. battery died. I'm going solo here, friend. All right. Or I'll have to yell real loud so the people out on the internet can still hear me. Edward got that joke. They can't hear me, by the way. It doesn't matter how loud I yell. They're, if they're in Louisville, they're not going to hear me yell. All right. My job is not to come into your life and be an intrusion, but rather be an extension of your life, as we talked about this morning. We make sure here in the church that in the teaching, the classrooms, that it is done effectively efficiently, and to the best of our ability, excellently. That's what we drive for. In fact, in staff meetings, we will use those three words all the time when we talk about ministries or opportunities or things that we're engaged in. The arrows here are not in my hand except for my three boys. My three sons are mine to shoot off into life. The Bible actually says in verse 4, as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Literally, they are ours to shoot off into the next generation. However many children God has given to you, husbands and fathers particularly, your job is to get them ready and shoot them off into life. So the picture here is of a mighty man standing with his bow drawn. The arrow is set to be released and whew, off it goes. The archer is taught three things when he or she begins archery class. Number one, have a stable base. They have to have stability in the lower half. Those feet aren't too wide and they're not too narrow. They're about hip and shoulder width apart and they follow up through so that you have a base so that you can shoot. Stability, they say in the teaching, will ensure repeatability in your shot. The second thing that an archer is taught when they begin their classes is a sure grip. The bow hand is sure, but it's not too tight and rigid. So if you have a compound bow and you're pulling it, I was watching a video of a fellow. Now, I don't do this, but a guy was showing me on TV, right, how to do this. You hold it and your, your thumb is at 2 o'clock and your, your knuckles are at 45 or something like that. I don't know. And you're pulling the bow, but when you pull it, you don't lock that left arm because if you lock it and you're rigid, then it's going to be harder for you when it's back. It's got to be firm but soft. Boy, isn't that what a dad is? Isn't that what a dad's supposed to be? Firm, but soft, understanding. The third 
is a steady release. When it comes for time on the shot, and by the way, as one that is pretty good with the pistol, I understand that when I go to shoot my pistol, I'm not taking the pistol and squeezing like this. I relax, squeeze through the shot, and let the gun do its job. So too with the archer. It is pulled, the, the base is set, it is pulled, and when it's there, it's not, yeah, it's release. In other words, when it's time to let your kids go, let them go. The worst thing that I've ever seen in pastors and in counseling is over-meddlesome parents. Listen, I have both sets of my parents, my parents and my in-laws. Do you know what they don't do? They don't ever come over to our house and say, Kyle, you're doing this. Jesse, you're doing this. They don't do that because they are their own homes. And they realized that when Jessica and I left, we became our own home. And when Drew, Nate, and Luke someday get married, off they go to become their own home. I will have done my job in training them to the best of my ability. This is what Hezekiah is telling us through Solomon's words. I won't be here in the next generation, but I hope I've trained you right. I've given you a stable base at home for your emotional, physical, and spiritual man. I hope that I've had a sure grip, not a firm grip, but a sure grip in the manner of living, both in attitudes and actions, young people that you have, and that there will be a steady release at some point only when we're sure the time is right. Finally, let her see they are the future. It is our responsibility as homes to form the next generation. But they're the ones that actually have to live in the next generation. I've recently become very aware of that, not even in the parental home life, but in the church life. Who will be the next one that leads soul winning in such a way like Edward does? I mean, you're not planning to go anywhere, are you? Yeah, right, right. But you're, how young are you? 78 in two months. Do you think he'll keep it up until he's 98? Maybe. But it twerned forever, as they say. Who's going to do the preaching when I'm done? Who's going to do the teaching in the next quarter? <laughs> Let's get out of the years and decades look and just in the next quarter. The point is, there's always the next generation that must come along. And truthfully, this is where we tie it back into the trouble. While the practical is very practical for your home life, and I hope you use it that way, the future is always bright, but it's only as bright as you help make it. And that's where I would tie in my introduction of Hezekiah. When Isaiah brings the word of God to him in 2 Kings 19, and he says, well, the word of the Lord is good indeed. It won't be in my life. Manasseh is sitting there saying, but it's going to be in my life. I don't know if Hezekiah could have pleaded with God and seen things change. I have no idea. It's not how it happened. I don't like to play the supposed game or the philosophical questions from the Word of God. We can only look at practically what happened. But I do wonder if he had said, you know what, son, I, I want to I make your future bright. Isaiah, is there anything that we can do 
Can I plead to God and ask for forgiveness for bringing the Babylonians in? Would that stave or hold off his judgment? You see, parents and families and homes within a church, we are responsible in this generation to make sure the next generation is very bright. It's our job. Oh, how joyful it would be if our prime timers said, you know what? I'm watching a bunch of these young families running around with all these kids. I'm going to see if they'll go out and get ice cream with me at Baskin Robbins. We don't have one. Uh, Dairy Queen. That's a good one. Dairy Queen's a good one. Your caloric intake right through the roof. And just sit and talk to them about life. You're telling me that some of these young families who are today in here, but also some of them out teaching, they couldn't get great value from years of wisdom where generationally somebody says, I understand this psalm is not just talking about parents and kids. It's talking about in the church being able to pass along information so that those Christians can live good, strong, healthy lives. In verse number five, the children are now down at the gate doing the business. They are promoting the family. They are strengthening their land. They are capable and confident in verse number five in what the way forward should be. These parents, at least in principle in the psalm, maybe not Solomon and Hezekiah, but these parents in principle had done their task. They had done what was important. I'm always reminded when I read that verse in verse Uh, verses 3, 4, and 5, I always think of the Apostle John's last words before Revelation. He says in 3 John, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And all of the prime timers say, boy, that is absolutely true. In closing... When you have experienced captivity, turn to God's productivity. It might be the best way to summarize the trust that we find in this psalm. When you have experienced captivity, turn to God's productivity. Let him work through you. God's hand, we find in this psalm, is put to rebuilding us, remembering us, and relieving us. His heritage blesses us with his fruit, his productivity, that we then form for his glory so that there is a bountiful future. What a rich and powerful psalm. It's why when you get to Psalm 128, you can read verses that Edward's going to preach on next week. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord. In verse number three, thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house. Thy children like olive plants round about thy table. That's the triumph that comes from this kind of trust. Great productivity in glorifying our God. Father, help us, I pray.